everybody, to our very first episode of Cream City Stories. My name is Julia Griffith. I'm the program director for Historic Milwaukee, and we are bringing you this brand new podcast. We are thrilled to welcome our tour guide of the podcast, if you will, our docent, Sean Reagan, who you'd say you're an amateur historian, would you say? Yeah, I'm an amateur historian. I've been a tour guide at HMI for, what, 13 years now, I think? Sounds about right. Yeah, and so... You know, um, in addition to the tours, um, during the COVID pandemic, um, the idea cropped up to do podcasts and tell stories in this medium rather than in walking tours that we couldn't do. True. And I think this medium lends itself to some stories that maybe you couldn't connect walking on your feet, but, you know, sort of spatially diverse stories that maybe you couldn't get to. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So we're thinking this will be about one a month story a month and we're really looking forward to it we're going to cover well i say milwaukee things but you are more descriptive of that what we're going to talk about yeah the people the places the things that made milwaukee what it is today all right julia today's story is about a tragic incident that occurred within just a few blocks of hmi's headquarters more specifically, it involved an elegant ship, an uncooperative river, and a water tower. Our story begins with an immigrant from Scotland named Alexander McDougall, who in 1855 came to Canada with his parents when he was only 10 years old. After receiving minimal schooling, McDougall left home to become a sailor on the Great Lakes at the age of 17. Over the years, and as he gained experience, he became quite familiar with how violent and deadly Great Lakes storms could be. After all, there are thousands of shipwrecks on the floors of the Great Lakes with the loss of tens of thousands of lives. And so McDougall decided to come up with his own ship design that could withstand the worst of lake weather while at the same time deliver at least as much cargo as conventionally designed ships. What McDougall came up with was called the whaleback design. Whalebacks have a rounded watertight hull that's you know, cylindrical or, or cigar, or cigar or, or submarine shaped and doesn't have conventional vertical sides. Some said that these uniquely shaped hulls look something like a whale in the water, and so the name stuck. These boats were designed to ride low in the water with a spoon-shaped prow to reduce water resistance. The design also allows water to actually wash over the hull and the deck when in rough weather. But because of the rounded shape, water doesn't stand on the deck. It simply washes over the watertight hull. So I'm... In my mind, I'm kind of picturing something between like a pontoon boat or maybe like a catamaran. Yeah. So if you take like one pontoon from a pontoon boat and picture that as the hull for the entire ship. Okay. And then the superstructure is put on top of that. Gotcha. And then it's 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 all watertight. Mm-hmm. And then the cargo is placed inside the cylinder. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. They, ro- they ride really low in the water, which also kind of leads to the name the whaleback. Yeah. So... Although McDougall was sure of his design, he was unable to persuade any other existing shipbuilders to take a chance on his unconventional design. So he struck out on his own and founded the American Steel Barge Company in Superior, Wisconsin in 1888. In fact, the first whaleback ship he ever built was christened McDougall's Dream. For the first few years, McDougall built only freighters that shipped all kinds of cargo around the Great Lakes, including iron ore, grain, lumber, coal, and even sand. Then in, 18, in 1892, our industrious and entrepreneurial seaman and inventor had the bright idea to build a steamship that would carry passengers, 
for the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 that was currently being planned and built in Chicago. The World's Fair of 1893 was being held to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the Americas. The fairgrounds were located at Jackson Park, roughly seven miles south of Chicago's downtown along the shore of Lake Michigan. It was literally a city in itself that was carved out of and built on nearly 700 acres of what had been swamp and scrubland by the legendary landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted. Once it was completed, it quickly became known as the White City. Over its six-month run, over 27 million attendees came to the fair to see all the latest wonders of the Gilded Age. Prominent architects from around the country designed grand exhibition halls in white neoclassical architecture where you could literally see millions of objects and products on display. Just about anything and everything you could ever, ever imagine could be seen at the fair. Now just think about that, Julia. 27 million attendees. Yeah, so today that'd be what? So, so at the time, there were 63 million people in the United States. Okay. So if you were to hold something like that today, yeah. you need to have 145 million attendees. It's never going to happen. In six months. In six months. Wow. So at the fair, in six months, that was an average of like 150,000 people a day, every day for six months straight. Amazing. Yeah. I was, and this is before airplanes, before <laughs> highways, before automobiles. Yeah. I mean, this is people coming by horse and carriage and train. And whale back. And whale back. Exactly. <laughs> So at the fair, there was the administration building. Then there were buildings to exhibit mining, horticulture, livestock, and forestry. There was a hall just for the accomplishments of women, an agricultural building, an electrical building, a palace of fine art, a transportation building, machinery hall, and an aquarium. And then there was the granddaddy of them all, the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building. It was 1,687 feet long, 787 feet wide, over 200 feet tall, and contained 44 acres of exhibit space. Acres of exhibit space, all under one roof. Wow. Yeah, and it also happened to be the largest building in the world at the time. 46 countries had pavilions at the fair to show off their culture, art, history, architecture, industry, and products. It was kind of like a supersized version of the World Showcase at Disney's Epcot. In addition, 34 states had their own pavilions, most of which were meant to be architecturally representative of each individual state. For instance, Pennsylvania's was designed to look like Independence Hall, California's resembled a Spanish mission, and Virginia's was an exact replica of Mount Vernon. The Wisconsin Pavilion was a large, three-story Queen Anne mansion made of brick, stone, and cedar shakes, which featured balconies, a large porch, and turrets. And then there was the Midway. While the rest of the fair was designed for education and culture, the Midway was for the was the for-profit bohemian wing of the fair that offered a spellbinding whirlwind tour of the globe, even if you had to pay for each and every individual exhibit by itself. There was an Algerian village with dancing girls from a Moorish harem. The German village had plenty of cold beer. A French cider press with peasant girls and servers. An Irish village with a mock-up of the Blarney Castle. And the streets of Cairo, complete with donkeys, camels, fortune tellers, snake charmers, and belly dancers. You could walk the streets of Constantinople or Vienna. You could take a trip to the Swiss Alps or find yourself in a Japanese bazaar. And of course, you could take in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. The Midway also featured a zoo with a collection of animals like none you've ever seen. Bears on tightropes, 
lions driving chariots, a dwarf elephant, and tigers riding bicycles. You could ride in a hot air balloon, take the ice railway toboggan, witness Mount Vesuvius erupt right before your very eyes, or take a ride on the world's very first Ferris wheel. Although this Ferris wheel was absolutely enormous. It had 36 cars that could each hold 40 passengers, and it rose to a height of 264 feet, which gave riders sweeping views of the fair, Lake Michigan, and the Chicago skyline. It was specifically built to be the showcase of the fair and to surpass the grandeur of the Eiffel Tower from the previous World's Fair of 1889 in Paris. There was just so much to see and do at the 1893 World's Fair that I could drone on and on about it for hours on end. Honestly, if I could go back in time to meet with any individual or participate in any historical event, my choice would be to spend a week or two just taking in all the sights and the sounds and the splendor of that World's Fair. Anyway, back to our story. This was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that McDougall felt he just couldn't pass up. His idea was to provide steamship passenger service from downtown Chicago to the dock at the fairgrounds. His new steamship would also promote his whaleback ships in the hope that he could generate sales for his shipbuilding company. He decided to name the new passenger ship the SS Christopher Columbus to naturally coincide with the overall theme of the World's Fair. Her keel was laid down in September of 1892. The ship had nine watertight bulkheads that made up her hull. There were six boilers that powered two steam engines and one 14-foot diameter propeller to drive her through the water. She then had six turrets, for lack of a better term, that were secured to the top of the hull that were designed to fasten the two-deck superstructure above to the hull below. Again, it was designed so that water could wash over the hull and around the turrets in rough seas. When she was launched in late 1892, she was 362 feet long, the length of a, the entire length of a football field, and 42 feet wide. She was the largest whaleback ever built, and she was the largest ship on the Great Lakes at the time. McDougall even had her painted in all white so that she would fit in at the White City. And is that, okay, so I know today most, like, the largest ships are more than a thousand. A thousand footers. Right. So... But 392 is like a big jump, pretty big. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, so throughout the 19th century, I think the answer to your question is the introduction of steel. Okay. Once the transformation from wooden ships to steel ships occurred, yeah. it was just, you know, uh, an incrementally, you know, uh, over time, the transformation, they got, these ships got longer and longer sure. and bigger and bigger. Um, and they also got, you know, safer and more easy to maintain as well. And, and it, you know, eventually culminated in those thousand-foot ships that you mentioned. Okay. Makes sense. So when she was completed in the spring of 1893, she featured a number of elegant and luxurious amenities, which included electric lights, oak paneling, velvet carpets, etched glass, and leather furniture. There were skylights, a number of fountains, a dance floor, shops, a restaurant, and bars for the passengers. She, there was even a large aquarium filled with freshwater lake fish. When she went into service, she made several daily round trips between the Van Buren docks in downtown Chicago and the World's Fair at Jackson Park. Passenger souvenir booklets described her as both the queen of the lakes and the greatest marine wonder of its time. The Columbus was initially designed to hold up to 4,000 passengers, but it's estimated that she carried over 7,000 on her maiden trip to the fair. And during her, her six-month run, she safely carried nearly 2 million passengers to and from the fair. 
enjoying this podcast? Mark your calendar for Doors Open Milwaukee 2021 to explore more history, architecture, and neighborhoods virtually and in person beginning September 25th. Thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts, Greater Milwaukee Foundation, Zilber Family Foundation, and Wells Fargo for their generous support. Visit historicmilwaukee.org to learn more. After the fair ended, she was put into regular passenger service, mostly between Chicago and Milwaukee. In 1899, she was sold to the Goodrich Transit Line, and a third passenger deck was added to her superstructure. The Goodrich Line had been operating in Milwaukee and other Lake Michigan ports since the 1850s. And yes, it's the same Goodrich Line that Captain Frederick Pabst worked as a steamship captain. Her daily routine was to leave Chicago at 10 a.m. and arrive in Milwaukee at around 3 p.m. for a two-hour stopover, where passengers could, could briefly explore what Milwaukee had to offer, and then return to Chicago early in the evening. At one point, the Goodrich Line advertised it as 170 miles of smiles. According to author Carl Swanson, the Goodrich Line was also known for the exceptional maintenance of its ships and attention to safety. Crews were required to scrub the decks and clean and polish services daily, and every ship was repainted top to bottom every single year. In addition, management required weekly fire drills, and all Goodrich ships were equipped with more firefighting equipment than was required by the law. Then, on July 24, 1915, a maritime disaster occurred right in the heart of downtown Chicago. That was when the passenger ship Eastland capsized while boarding over 2,500 passengers for a day excursion. On the day of the disaster, the ship became top-heavy and unstable when too many passengers boarded and then lingered on one side of the ship. The ship quickly listed to a 45-degree angle, and within just a few minutes, the massive ship rolled over. Yeah, newspaper reporter and poet Carl Sandberg described it as looking like a dead jungle monster shot through the heart. Everyone on board was thrown into or pulled under the water, and 844 people were killed, all within 20 feet of the dock, and it was the worst loss of life in Great Lakes history. It should be noted that the Eastland was notorious for being top-heavy, and over the years she had suffered a number of scary incidents when the ship dangerously listed and nearly capsized. And it always happened when either loading or unloading passengers. Because of this tragedy, Chicago officials began to wonder if the odd-looking SS Christopher Columbus was also dangerously top-heavy. Yeah. yeah, good question. So they quickly ordered the Columbus to undergo stability testing in the Chicago Harbor. They ordered the Goodrich Line to load the upper decks with 7,500 large sandbags, or about a million pounds, to simulate the weight of an overloaded number of passengers. Once in the middle of the harbor, the sandbags were shifted to one side of the ship, and she was ordered to circle the harbor. And guess what happened? What? Nothing. Really? Yep. She just leaned a couple of degrees in that direction, and that was it. Officials then tied a tugboat onto the Columbus and ordered it to try and pull the ship over. Try as it might, the tug was only able to cause a 12-degree list, and the ship righted itself as soon as the line was dropped. That's great. Yeah, so I guess old Alexander McDougall was right about the stability of his whalebacks after all. <laughs> For over two decades, the Christopher Columbus was host to an average of about 2,500 passengers on his daily run to Milwaukee and back, and all without serious incident. When the Christopher Columbus would arrive in Milwaukee, she would tie up at the Goodrich docks, which were, lo were located on the west side of the Milwaukee River 
just south of the Michigan Street Bridge. So like literally like two blocks from HMI. Yeah, seriously. When she entered the harbor, she would drive straight up the Milwaukee River to moor her dock at Michigan Street. Then when she would depart Milwaukee for the trip back to Chicago, the ship and a pair of tugboats would perform an aquatic ballet of sorts to send the SS Christopher Columbus back on her way down the river and into the lake. Because she was so long, as long as a football field, she was too long to do a U-turn at the Michigan Street docks. The tugboats, one at the bow and one at the stern, would initially guide the Columbus stern first or backwards down the Milwaukee River from the Michigan Street towards the mouth of the harbor. Once the tugs and the ship reached a wide enough section of the river, they would gently do a wide turn of sorts to get a turn to the right direction to sail bow first down the river and out into the lake. That section of the river is called the Basin, and it's located right where the Menominee River flows into the Milwaukee River, and it's also where the Milwaukee River turns eastward under the Water Street drawbridge. Okay, so in land terms, where the third ward turns into Water's Point. Yes. Okay, on water. Yeah, exactly. The, the, spot's, the spot is directly west of the Water Street Bridge over the Milwaukee River. Um, it's also where the old fire station oh, yeah. and the Harry Hoffman building on Water Street yeah, are. I got you. So if you know where either of those buildings, that's exactly where the basin is. And it's actually a really wide section of the okay. river. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one tug would pull the Columbus's stern towards the Menominee River and then hold the rear of the ship in place as sort of a pivot point. And then the other tug would swing the bow of the ship from facing towards the north to facing east just before sliding gently past the Water Street Bridge. Great. They'd performed this delicate dance thousands of times before and without incident. But that all came to an abrupt end on June 30th, 1917. On that early summer day, most of the passengers on the SS Columbus were students from the University of Chicago and Northwestern University enjoying a day trip to the Cream City. What the captains of the tugs and the Columbus must not have known was that recent heavy rainstorms to the west were causing an unusually strong current coming out of the Menominee River into the Milwaukee River. As the rear tug and the Columbus inched into the confluence of the Menominee, rather than remaining in place, the boats found themselves caught up in the, Menom in the Menominee's current and drifting rapidly to the east. At the same time, as the bow of the ship was swimming from north to east, the ship was drifting closer and closer to that east bank of the river. Fearing that his ship would collide with the bank, the captain of the Columbus ordered his engines to reverse at full speed, but it was too late. As the captain yelled to the passengers to take cover, the bow of the ship swept over the east bank and collided with a 100-foot-tall water tower that belonged to the Yarlang Drug Company. Two of the legs of the tower were instantly sheared off. With the legs gone, the tower suddenly began to topple over. First, the 25,000 gallons of water that were in the tank spilled out and smashed onto the decks of the Columbus. And then the steel superstructure of the tower came crashing down onto the ship directly behind the pilot house as the tank itself fell past the ship and into the water. The superstructure of the tower sliced right through the two passenger decks where the dozens of passengers had been cheerfully waving to people on the shore just seconds before. The heavy steel legs of the tower destroyed the captain's quarters, severely damaged the pilot house, and smashed the ship's restaurant to pieces. The captain of the ship initially found himself pinned under what had been the pilot, his pilot house, with both legs injured, but he managed to free himself. Others were not so lucky. Dozens were crushed under the wreckage or thrown into the murky and polluted river. Rescuers scrambled, frankly, 
to frantically to throw life preservers and pull the victims out of the water. Newspaper accounts describe bodies mangled beyond recognition, with several arms and legs floating in the river. Yeah. After, after everyone was accounted for, 13 had been killed and at least 20 more had been seriously injured. In retrospect, the tragedy actually could have been much worse. The ship had only 400 passengers that day, instead of its usual 2,500. The majority of the damage occurred where relatively few passengers had been standing, and Alexander McDougall's sturdy whaleback didn't sink. The SS Christopher Columbus was out of service for the rest of the year to undergo repairs. She returned the very next year in 1918 and continued her daily run between Chicago and Milwaukee all the way until 1931. Wow. Yeah, and her last hurrah came when she once again was put into service for a World's Fair. This time it was for the Century of Progress, the Chicago's World's Fair of 1933. When she was finally retired and sold for scrap, it's estimated that she had carried more passengers than any other ship on the Great Lakes ever. And, her, and in her 40 years of service, she suffered only one accident that resulted in the loss of life. So even though she sailed for 40 years with really no problems, compared to some of the other story, like the other story you told, that she's the, it's the only whaleback passenger ship ever? Yeah, the Columbus was the one and only whaleback pass, passenger ship ever built. Hmm. Yeah, despite the stunning success at the Chicago World's Fair and her long career after the fair, she was the only one ever built. Interesting. And her creator, McDougal, what do we know about the rest of his life? Well, um, I know that he built a total of 44 whalebacks during his career. Okay. Um, 15 of which were in collaboration with John D. Rockefeller, yeah. the Gilded Age Baron of the oil industry. Quite a big name. Yeah. Um, and the whalebacks themselves, they were safe and reliable ships. However, they became obsolete in many applications when modern unloading machinery was introduced. Sure. That equipment required very large deck hatches, which okay. whalebacks were simply unable to accommodate. Makes sense. Yeah, their design requires small hatches with watertight seals. Yeah. Um, Alexander McDougall uh, lived to the age of 78 when he died in 1923. And if you'd like to see a whale back in person, there is only one left in, in the entire world. Wow. And that is the SS Meteor, which is now a museum ship in Superior, Wisconsin, the same city where she was launched in 1896. I love it. We came full circle with the Christopher Columbus to, you know, World's Fair. So we came full circle with the whale backs back to Superior. Exactly. The last whale back is where they first began. I like that. Yeah. And so that's our story for today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You know, I've lived in Wisconsin most of my life, or on been connected to Lake Michigan for a long time, and I have absolutely never heard of this type of ship. So thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Yeah, it's a great little story. I think we can sort of tease our audience a little bit that this is the kind of story you like to find. Sort of a little more obscure, kind of interesting. Yeah. Some good stuff. So coming up, we've got, you know, some stories about some maybe not so well-known houses that were designed and built by Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the south side. Uh, yeah. Um, we can, you know, always talk about the the motorcycles that are made here. Seems like a good plan, and maybe uh, a little more of the scandalous personal lives of our brewmaster friends of old. Oh, yeah, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the beer bears of Milwaukee. Oh, um, and if you're looking for more history, you can always 
take a tour with Sean or one of our other tour guides. You can find Cream City Stories wherever podcasts are distributed. Mm-hmm.